from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. And if you've got a church Bible, it's on page 1029. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Euteria and Traconitus, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowd coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax has been laid to the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all of the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Thanks very much, Kath, uh, for reading. My name's Chris Evans. Uh, if you're visiting or haven't met you yet, I'm uh, the assistant pastor here. Um, I'm going to uh, preach this passage to us. Um, why don't we pray, ask for um, the Lord's help now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your words. We thank you that you um, spoke in the wilderness uh, to your people through um, John and that you spoke way back in Isaiah's day. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word and that you continue to speak through it today. Uh, we pray that you would please speak now to us, that your spirit would take uh, the truths 
that are in uh, your words and apply them to our hearts. Lord, would we see the Lord Jesus more clearly because of these words? Would we be helped and encouraged to follow him uh, more closely? In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've spotted, we've had a couple of um, quite big preparations um, going on uh, in Winchester in the last year, getting ready for big visits. Um, we had preparing for, for a prince, who's now, who's now the king. Um, do you remember the visit of Charles for the unveiling of the statue down by the um, Discovery Centre, or now the Ark Centre? Uh, I used to kind of walk past it every day, and suddenly there, was, there were police all over the place, uh, bollards up to kind of sort out the queuing and, and uh, keep the roads safe. So we had, we've had preparing for, for, for a prince. The town looked very, very different all of a sudden. Um, a few months ago, a month ago, you might have walked past Winchester Cathedral. We had getting ready uh, for a film crew. Maybe you saw the big lorries parked by the, on one side and then you went through to the cathedral close and you saw about seven cranes uh, ready to kind of rig up lighting uh, Tents ready to keep the, the actors kind of out of the public eye. Um, lots of preparations uh, we've, we've seen. Maybe you've uh, been getting ready for something yourself, uh, a family visit, a special occasion, the birth of a child. But today, we're thinking about how do you prepare someone to meet the Son of God? Not a prince, not a film crew, but the Son of God himself. John the Baptist kind of pops up again now in chapter 3. Um, the last time we had him was at the end of chapter 1. He was heading off uh, to the wilderness. And John is about getting people ready to meet Jesus. He is about preparing people. And so that's the thought today. How can we be ready uh, to meet Jesus? Three things. The first thing that John teaches us is that the Lord is coming and that we are to prepare our hearts. The Lord is coming. Prepare your heart. Um, verses 1 to 6, Luke kind of sets the scene for John's ministry. And we see that uh, after hundreds of years of no prophets, uh, hundreds of years of silence, God's people waiting, the Lord is speaking. Uh, as usual, Luke is really keen on the historical details. Have a look down. Verse 1 and 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, Trichonitis, and Lys—I don't know how you pronounce that—Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, all these people, the word of God came to who? Who do we think the word of God might? come to. We've had this list of movers and shakers, important people. The reigning Caesar, the one with the most power in the region. Is it going to come to the local governor? Surely the word of God would come to one of the high priests. That who, that's who you'd expect that God would announce his word to. But what do we get? Verse 2, during the high priest of, of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John son of Zechariah. I think Luke wants us to see a, a bit of a contrast here, feel a little bit of a surprise. There's a set group of people who are supposed to bring God's word to God's people. That, that's the priests. But even if John's dad was a priest, we're, we're not expecting John, 
the guy who's out in the wilderness to be the one who receives the word of God. God's speaking, but not as we expect him to. And where's he speaking? Not in the royal houses of parliament, not in the temple or the high priest's quarters, but in the wilderness. It's like Luke calls us to look at all these movers and shakers, the people who seem to have the world at their fingertips, and ask, well, what's really going to change the world? Is it them? Is it the people who make the headlines, the papers, the news? No, the word of the Lord coming to John in the wilderness, a nobody in a nowhere place. That is what is going to change the world. And just as an aside, Shouldn't that be an encouragement to us every Sunday morning as we meet together? There's so many big decisions going on in the world, so many important leaders, so many seeming movers and shakers. But we see here it is the word of the Lord coming to the people of the Lord, which Luke says is the really important thing that is happening. And that is the most important thing happening This morning, all over the globe, as people gather and hear God's word read and preached, that the truth is going out in power. Not the news headlines, but the word of the Lord. That is what is going to change the world. Well, the Lord is speaking in the wilderness, but but Luke wants us to know this isn't random. It's a long-awaited new chapter in salvation history. God's people have been waiting for it for, for centuries. Alarm bells are supposed to be ringing. People are supposed to think Isaiah 40 is finally happening. Words of comfort, hope, and salvation. And just in case they haven't clocked, which is quite helpful for us because most of us don't know Isaiah brilliantly, Luke joins the dots for us. Have a look at verse 4. He says, As it is written in the book, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Well, that's John, isn't it? What's he saying? He says, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Not only is the Lord speaking to John, the Lord himself is going to be coming and soon. And John's task, we see, is to prepare the way. It sounds a little bit like a construction job. Every valley is to be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads become straight, the rough ways made smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. Remember what Simeon said when he saw the Lord Jesus? My eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. It conjures up this image A bunch of civil engineers, maybe some JCBs with some serious equipment, filling big holes with dirt. But when we see what John's doing, he doesn't seem to be doing anything that needs a high-vis jacket. Have a look at verse 3. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So how does preaching a baptism of the repentance for the forgiveness of sins fit with straightening paths and flattening mountains? I think Luke is trying to show us that the one is a picture of the other. The idea is that there are all sorts of obstacles that are going to get in the way of the people receiving the Lord Jesus. 
But the greatest obstacle of all, more than any mountain or valley or crooked path, is our own sinful hearts. John's saying that the Lord is coming and you are to prepare him room. But, but, but where is that room? Well, we sing about it every Christmas. We sing the carol, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. How does John prepare room for the Lord Jesus? He goes for people's hearts. Because for anyone to truly begin to understand the glorious salvation that Jesus is going to offer them, they must also begin to grasp that they are more sinful than they could ever comprehend, that they need him more than they could possibly imagine. Let me try and illustrate that. Um, My goddaughter recently broke her elbow um, a couple of months back. And um, she had to have it reset and in a cast for about eight weeks. And at two points along the way, they discovered that it had got infected and she got put on one set of antibiotics and then another set of antibiotics, which in her four-year-old way of describing them, tasted yucky. Um, But she, she took it. She, she, she had the, the, the pain of resetting. She, she took the, the yucky medicine uh, because she knew she was poorly and, and she knew that they could make it better. Mummy and Daddy had kind of prepared the way for her trip to hospital. So she trusted the doctor's words and the treatment, even if it was really hard and painful and yucky. And this week, I got sent a lovely photo of a happy four-year-old girl with a big smile and a unicorn dress and no cast on her arm, looking delighted. Now, when we think of how mangled and infected and kind of dangerous her arm could have been in now if nothing had been done, our happiness at seeing that photo is multiplied, isn't it? And... Our sin is so much more complicated than that. Our hearts are so much more complicated than that. But, but just imagine for a moment. Imagine if she'd broken her elbow, uh, but she hadn't noticed. <laughs> Mum and dad say, Bethany, we need to go to the doctor. Your, your elbow looks broken. We need to make you better. And she says, no, it's not. I'm not going. There's nothing wrong. Imagine she has no concept of bones or, or blood that they can break or that you can get an infection that she could become poorly or even die. Imagine she was totally numb to it. Now, I know that's impossible to imagine um, because, of course, you'd be screaming in pain. But, but if the thing is, our sinful hearts don't scream in the way that broken bodies do. Sin deceives us and says we're totally fine when, in reality, it is far worse than a broken and infected elbow. That's a little bit like what John is dealing with here. Patients who are sick with rebellion to God, but don't know it and won't hear a word that the doctor says unless they're helped to understand the problem. Just like my goddaughter needed preparing, they need preparing and our hearts need preparing too. And that's why praying for the Holy Spirit to convict our hearts of sin is such a great thing to pray, even if it feels a hard thing to pray, because salvation from sin won't make any sense if sin isn't a problem. Just like a cast 
and antibiotics sound absolutely useless if you don't believe your elbow uh, is broken. John says, the Lord is coming. Prepare him room. Accept your need for him. And for these people, that, that meant being baptized and repenting of their sins. We're going to think about repentance in, in just a moment. Um, but just as an aside, John's baptism here, it's not quite like what we did a couple of weeks ago. All John can do is get people wet. But this baptism is a bit like a statement of an intent. I know that I need washing, and I want to follow the Messiah when he comes. We believe, John, we believe the Lord is coming, and we're preparing him room in our hearts. So we're going we're gonna to make a, a statement to say that. The Lord is coming. Prepare him room in your hearts. But how does John then prepare them for Jesus? Well, he asks them to look in, in two places. Firstly, he says, look at your life. That's our second point. Look at your life, verses 7 to 14. Look at your life. And the question is, are you bearing fruit? In verse 18, uh, we're given a little summary of everything else that John does. And we're told John preached good news. But when you look at verse 7 to 9, it doesn't sound quite as we're expecting. He begins, verse 7, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Pretty strong stuff. It's as if he's likening them to be children of the serpent, children of Satan, followers of him. As if he's saying, you're so much worse than you think. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now, I bet those who got baptized a few weeks ago are quite pleased um, that Johnny didn't take a a leaf out of John the Baptist's book here. Um, But what he's saying, he's saying in a hard way to make a crucial point, which is verse 8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The idea is you sow the seed of repentance and it should bear the fruit of repentance in your life. John is saying to them, you've come to get baptized. You're saying that you are turning from sin and that you are preparing your hearts for the Lord Jesus. I want you to come as you mean to go on. He's separating those who are serious and those who aren't. Because turning to the Lord means turning from something else, turning from your old allegiances. Preparing the way for Jesus means teaching that following Jesus will mean living for Jesus. And John knows the temptation for so many is not simply to to reject Jesus, but rather to, to take all that Jesus can do for us without any of the implications of living for him. To sow the seed, but never want to bear the fruit. And so, he says, there's an easy test to see whether you are serious. And the question isn't look at your ethnic status. Some people thought in verse 8 that just being a Jew, being a child of Abraham, uh, was enough. No, the question is about people's hearts and people's lives. Look at your life. Are you bearing fruit, he says. The Lord who is coming isn't after a ceremony. He isn't after them being from the right background. He's not after some words said at the front. 
He's not even after them getting wet in a river. Not if any of that doesn't come with the consistency of trying to live for Jesus. He is after their whole life. He is after their hearts. He wants repentance that bears fruit. And just like any tree, the quality of the the fruit that comes out depends on on it being well-rooted, nutrients and, and water. He says, I want you to show that you're planted in the Lord by displaying the fruit that comes from it. Just like apples don't grow on banana trees and conkers don't grow on plum trees. No, that wouldn't be in keeping. John says, if you've turned from sin and put your trust in the Lord, then you'll bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, John isn't saying you have to sort your life out to come to Jesus. No, we know that Jesus is the only one who can sort our lives out. But he is saying Coming to Jesus is a confession and admission that our lives are in a mess, that we want to look different and reflect him. And it's admission that God has the right to call everyone to live a certain way because he made us. And because living for him is what we are for. And we see how serious this is because fruitlessness means we're not rooted in Christ which leads to a very dangerous place. Verse nine, the ax is ready at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Look at your life. Are you bearing fruit? Are you starting as you mean to go on? That's what John's saying. That's really hard to hear, isn't it? It's hard for them to hear um, and hard for us to hear now. I think the idea of repentance is profoundly offensive because it says that God's account of who I am and his program for my life is more important than who I say I am and my program for my life. I wonder how John's words would be heard today if he stepped out on Winchester High Street. Being told that we should change our lives in a culture that values our self-worth and self-expression so highly is a very offensive thing. But repentance says, no, we should change. Rather than being satisfied with who we are, because God's plan for who we are is much more true, more good, and more beautiful than anything we could come up with. And John's answer to change, it's not to give them therapy, it's not to treat them like a victim, but to honestly call out our biggest problem and call us to to own it with humility and confession. But as we are called away from sin, we're always called towards something more beautiful, more wonderful, the Lord Jesus and the beautiful life we were made to live. And what what does that life look like? Well, in 10 to 14, Luke gives us three kind of sketches of a fruitful life. Three times people ask, uh, what should I do? How, How should I now live? Verse 10, verse 12, and verse 14. And three times, John shows them the difference that repentance makes to everyday life. The first group, verse 10, what should we then do? The crowds ask. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. 
bearing fruit, it, it's not rocket science. It's a fairly concrete thing. He says here, if you have more than you need, then be generous with what you've been given. It will look different for different people, but that is a difference that following Jesus would make. The second group of people, verse 12, even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. This time he kind of ties it to their particular job. It's it's very specific. Tax collectors were known for maybe taking a bit of a cut for themselves or roughing people up. But no, John says, turning from sin, turning to the Lord will mean loving their neighbor and fulfilling their duties in a fair way, not taking any more than they should. And there's the third group. Then some soldiers asked, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Again, bearing fruit in repentance changes the way these soldiers are to live. They're to love God and neighbor in two specific ways. They treat their neighbor truthfully. They don't accuse them falsely and fare them fairly. They don't extort money from them. And that means they don't grumble to God about their circumstances either. Be content with your pay. They trust in the pay that God has provided and don't try to extort any more themselves. Now, none of these three examples are that dramatic, are they? Repentance here is seen, it's heard, it's felt, it's touched. And in one sense, it's just quite concrete and very everyday changes. Now, we, <laughs> wonderfully, we stand after the Lord Jesus. He's, he's already come, and we're waiting for him to come again. But these words still have power, don't they? What do we want to be found doing? What is the fruitful life that we are called to live when Jesus returns? Do we want to be found living our own way? Or living his way. It's not calling for a monastic lifestyle. But in each of those examples we see the love of God and the love of neighbor making a difference to everyday life. So I can't stand here and tell you exactly what that's going to look like for you. What it might look like in your workplace. The people who you work for who are above you. The people who work for you underneath you. In your family, maybe your relationship with with parents or children or siblings or a spouse. What might love of God and love of neighbor look like in those relationships? I can't give you a detailed, this is what you should do. But I can be sure that there is room for change because I see it in my own life. And John causes us to ask the question, how would my relationship with Jesus affect these things. Think about tomorrow. What is my relationship with my boss or my spouse or my housemate going to look like? And how does the fact that I know the Lord Jesus change that? Should I be approaching work differently because Jesus is Lord? Should I be grumbling less or be more honest? Should I be serving others more? And if If we feel we've got into a bit of a pattern of not asking that and that 
we're not quite sure what difference following Jesus makes, then maybe that's the first question to ask. Is there something that I do need to repent of? Is there fruit here that I could be bearing that I am not? I heard um, a story um, uh, about Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century um, pastor and, and preacher. I couldn't find the source of this, but there's so many things about Spurgeon. I'm kind of hoping it's true, but it illustrates the point. Um, one of his church members became, had become a, a Christian, and she worked as like a, a housemaid, uh, um, doing all the, the cleaning and some of the cooking. And when he found out that she'd, she'd come to faith, he asked her a question, uh, which is what, what her life looked different now she followed Jesus. And the answer was, I now clean under the doormat. I now clean under the doormat. I just love that answer. She has this sense in which following Jesus made a very everyday difference to life. She maybe saw that, that she wasn't doing that before because maybe she was a bit lazy or, uh, or proud. It felt a task that was beneath her. And maybe it was just because no one saw it and she could get away with it. But now, following Jesus, well, he is the one that she served above everyone else. And so she wanted to do her job fully, not half-heartedly. And it mattered because even if no one else saw, Jesus saw it. She cleaned under the doormat. Look at your life. Are you bearing fruits? That is the first place John asks us to, to look. But the thing is, that's really hard, isn't it? Everything that I've said, it's really hard. Turning from sin, turning to the Lord Jesus, bearing fruit. Most of us who've been Christians for long enough will know as, as much as we might want to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, we do struggle. And often it can be two steps forward, one step back. And we do need more, don't we, than simply trying to be humble and confessing our sin. And that's why John says to prepare us to meet Jesus, don't just look at your life, don't just see your need, don't just see the potential, don't just look at your life, but you have to look at your saviour as well. In fact, look at, look at him way more. That's our third point, look at your saviour. Verse 15, the people were waiting expectantly. We're all wondering if, in their hearts if John possibly might be the Messiah. We've had a voice in the wilderness. Isaiah 40, the word of God has come. You can see why they're wondering. And a little bit later in Luke's gospel, we, we read that John is one of the most amazing men that has ever lived. Jesus says that about him. John is an incredible guy. It's no wonder they thought he might be the Messiah. And that makes his words in verse 16 all the more striking. He says in verse 16, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John preached good news, but the one who is coming will preach even better news. John baptized them as a sign of repentance, but but verse 17 tells us Jesus' baptism is going to do so much more. John says, I'm not the Messiah. All I can do is put out the red carpet, maybe even cleaned underneath it. All John can do is call people to repentance. Yes, John can get you wet on the outside and prepare your heart, and that is a really good thing. But Jesus can wash you on the inside, and Jesus can transform your heart. That is so much better. 
He says, verse 17, about Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And I think John's picking up on an Old Testament promise here from Ezekiel 36, who talked about the gift of the Spirit that God was going to give to his people. And this means that Jesus brings real forgiveness and the power for real change. When we look at our lives, we must look at our Savior because we see so much that is in need of forgiveness, don't we? We see at our Savior real forgiveness because Jesus washes us with more than water, with the Holy Spirit and fire. The stain of sin will be washed away and before God we are counted clean as if all our impurities are burned up by fire. We will be right with God, our sins no longer counted against us, ultimately because he's going to bear them on the cross. Ezekiel 36 verse 25, it's going to come up, says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you. It's a bit like baptism, isn't it? And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. Jesus brings real forgiveness, washing on the inside, not just on the outside. But that's not all. In giving us the Holy Spirit, Jesus brings the power for real change, to really bear fruit. The power to live differently, it can't come from inside, but only from the Lord. Ezekiel continues, um, he'll be up there, verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. God has promised to give us what we need to live the life that he calls us to live. Real forgiveness and the power for real change come in the Lord Jesus. They are ours the moment we put our trust in him. And it's so important that those two things come together. We don't try and change and bear fruit so that we can finally find forgiveness. Rather, we're washed and given the new heart and knowing the joy of forgiveness and the empowerment of the spirits, we're given hope for change. It will likely be slow and hard and even painful, but Jesus will do it. C.S. Lewis describes the process a little bit like this in his book, Mere Christianity. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing there, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. What a precious truth. The Lord is coming. We prepare him room. Look at your life and look at your Savior. 
And as we close, I guess the, the, the question is, uh, the people we see in this passage, who, who are we going to be like? Will we follow the crowds who ask, what can I do? I want to turn from sin. I, I want to trust in the Lord Jesus. Will we rely on that real forgiveness and real change and delight in it? I know many of us do. And will we keep praying that, that with the Lord's strength, we can, we can keep bearing fruit more and more? Or will we respond like Herod, that mover and shaker we saw in verse 1? He comes back again and reminds us, just as Jesus' good news, his good news is so much better than John's, but so is his judgment so much stronger. Verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Verse 19, when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Herod had heard John the Baptist's preaching. He'd heard John saying, the Lord is coming, prepare him room in your heart, Herod. He'd heard, he'd heard John calling him to, to look at his life. We see here, two marriages have been broken up. Incest has been committed. Surely in our culture, we'd say, oh, how nice. They've got a happy ending at last. Those two people are, are together. We're just so happy for you. No, John says, this is wrong. John says, Jesus is calling you to a far better, a far more beautiful life. You can find forgiveness. You can find change. What will Herod do? Will he say, Okay, what can I do? What can I do differently? Well, no, he locks John up. And as we read on, we find out he chops his head off. Herod will not make room in his heart for Jesus. He won't examine his own life. He won't look to Christ for real forgiveness or real change. And where does it lead? It turns him into a murderer. He won't prepare him room. I guess the question for us as we ponder this is, is, will we? Will we prepare him room in our hearts? Have we prepared him room? Will we know the joy of real forgiveness and real change? Let's take a moment of quiet and then pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of John the Baptist. We thank you for how he calls out our biggest problem, how he calls out our need for the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that he will not let us simply take what Jesus gives us in forgiveness uh, and, and, and go off living our own way. That he says Jesus gives us so much more. He gives us the opportunity to live the life that we were made for which is so precious and such a beautiful thing. Help us in our hearts to see that. Help us, we pray, to examine our lives and to depend upon the forgiveness we have in Christ and the power we have in the Spirit to bear fruit for you. Please be with each of us as we ponder what that might look like tomorrow morning, what that might look like in the playground, in the workplace, with our friends and family. 
Lord, we long to live lives that bring you honor, that bear fruit. We pray that in your kindness, you would root us more deeply in our Savior with more, uh, more wonder at his love, that we might be uh, deeply rooted in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.